0: This morning's scripture is from the book of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 6 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. This is God's Word.
1: Thanks be to God. So either our sound system is having issues or Van, our bass player, feels that he doesn't get enough attention. So (laughs) he's not even in here, is he? (laughs) He left the room. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning. It's a delight to be gathered before you, to sing to you, to worship you. You alone are worthy. Lord, we thank you that you are here with us now, and we pray that just as much, Jesus, as you were very present to those in the passage that was just read to us, make your presence known to us. Let us hear your voice. Let us hear the soft sound of your feet walking among us. Holy Spirit, come in power this morning. We thank you, Lord, that as you meet with us, there are many other churches around us meeting right now, and we thank you for them for their work in this area, and we ask your blessing upon them. This morning we lift up Elevation Church. We thank you for how you're working in that congregation to do many things in the city of Charlotte. We thank you for Prosperity Presbyterian right up the street from us, and for their new pastor, Bruce. We ask your blessing upon him and that ministry there. Lord, we thank you for Hickory Grove Baptist, and for how you've used them, Lord, in so many ways to preach the gospel of grace. Lord, for these churches and many others, we ask that you would meet with those congregations and bless them this morning. We ask that now you would come and meet us as we open your word, Lord Jesus, and it's in your name we pray, amen. Well, you know that people value things differently And it's always good, sometimes convicting, to ask ourselves why we spend resources the way we do. It's good to ask, why do we spend money the way we do? Why do we spend time the way we do? It's good to ask those kinds of questions. Now, just a year ago, literally one year from two days ago, there was a wedding in Moscow that took the notion of a lavish wedding ceremony to just a whole new level. Uh, the wedding was held at Sofisa. It's a luxury restaurant and banqueting venue that the couple literally transformed into this fairy tale setting, with walls of freshly cut flowers, furniture that was brought in from Paris. There were 600 guests there. Fresh sushi being you know prepared right there for all the guests, followed by this full European meal. Uh, a cake you can see there taller than the bride and groom themselves, was there. Uh, did you know you can get Sting to sing at your wedding? <laughs> you can, because not only did Sting, he was the opening act, and then he was followed by Enrique, Enrique Iglesias, and they set the stage for J-Lo, because then Jennifer Lopez comes out, and there were others too, but it, it's just this thing, and the pictures don't even do justice to what... You can go Google this online. Want to guess how much this wedding cost? Throw out a number. 500 million, okay. What? 100 million dollars. Okay, you're not even close. You can have all of this yourself for the low, low price of $1 billion. Yes, that is $1 billion, and I am not making this up. Now, you hope that the father of the groom who paid for this got a nice thank you note <laughs> after this wedding. And, and and you could go with this illustration, I think, in a lot of different ways. Um, the, the bride up there, her her dress weighed 28 pounds, small fortune in it alone. But at some level, the husband, the groom, deemed that his bride was worth what he was allowed to spend of the family's inheritance and their money. And this was, uh, just so you know, $1 billion, they, they could spend it. it. It was one-sixth of the father's fortune. So the father, he, he sacrificed a lot, but it was still only... He still has $5 billion left after this. Now, when you think of a wedding ceremony like this... One, I just can't even comprehend it. Second, once you get beyond the sticker shock different words would come to our minds. Uh, One word would be extravagant. Uh, And you're saying, yeah, to say it mildly. And extravagant means things like this. Exceeding the limits of reason. Lacking in moderation. Extremely excessive, profuse, lavish, or wasteful. Now you say, okay, yeah, fits that very well. Now I point that out. Because these definitions here of extravagant are exactly the words applied to the woman in our passage from Matthew 26. The disciples accused her of being a wastrel, of being extremely excessive in what she did to Jesus. And then perhaps if you combine two of these definitions, possibly even lacking in reason, what she did in worshiping the Lord. Now, today's passage, if you boil it down, I think it teaches us a lot of things, but if you boil it down, the central message or the central question it asks of us, modern-day followers of Jesus Christ, is this, how much is Jesus worth? Particularly, how much is Jesus worth to you? And it's fascinating to me that this passage today is sandwiched between two other accounts where people are deciding how much Jesus is worth to them. Because if you read the opening verses of Matthew 26, you'll see the religious leaders are plotting how they can secretly kill Jesus. And what they say there is basically, he's worth more to us dead than he is alive. And little do they know how true that was, ironically. Following the beautiful passage where this woman anoints Jesus, you have... Judas deciding how much Jesus is worth to him, and it falls out, he's worth 30 pieces of silver. That's what it costs for him to be willing to betray his Lord. So in the middle of these very two ugly passages about people deciding the worth of Jesus is this beautiful passage that forces us to say, how much is Jesus worth to us, to you? Now, a little bit of background. Let me read it again. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, and just so you know, obviously this is Simon the healed leper because you couldn't be having a banquet in a leper's home because you couldn't have contact with him. Many people believe not only was Simon previously healed by Jesus, a number of commentators actually believe that Simon is the father of this woman who John tells us is Mary, Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. So you've got it possibly in Simon the leper's home, father of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And John also tells us, and, and maybe you should know this, because there's four accounts of Jesus being anointed in the Gospels. Three refer to the same account, and one is different. The three that are the same account are Matthew, Mark, and John, Luke has another account, but it's a totally different time, totally different place, different people involved. There it's in a Pharisee's house with a very sinful woman who anoints Jesus with her tears. That's a different story, so it's easy to get them confused. But Matthew, Mark, and John all refer to the same account. And we learn from John that the woman that is nameless in Matthew's gospel is Mary. Simon, possibly her father. And when this happened was just so if you're thinking about a timeline of events, is Lazarus has already died, been in his tomb several days, and has been raised from the dead by Jesus. And so this banquet is about two days after Lazarus has been raised from the dead. So they're having this banquet, possibly a celebration of what's happened, also looking ahead at what's to come. And what happens during the dinner is that Mary, this woman, comes out with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. Now, alabaster jars were these semi-transparent jars. They resembled marble. They're about this tall. They had a very long and slender neck because these things were imported. John tells us also that what was inside the ointment, the perfume, was, pr- was nard, which was imported from India, and it was extremely expensive, about a year's wages for a working person. So you can just think about your whatever you make in a year is represented in this 12-ounce, which is about a Coke you know, can size of, you know, that represents a year's worth of your wages. The thing was, I mean, and just that alone, thinking about how expensive this perfume was it was probably a family heirloom. Uh, archaeologists have uncovered how these alabaster jars with this expensive ointment that was typically used for uh, people who have died and are being buried. You know, using it in that process. You know, I looked up last night. Used to be years ago, Chanel Number no. Five was the most expensive perfume in the world. It's not that case any longer. Uh, Because some people, it's not so much the perfume, but like Baccarat and Clive Christian have some that are more expensive these days, but the wealth is more contained in the bottle, not in the perfume. So Chanel's still one of the most expensive perfumes, and you can go onto Chanel's website today for the low, low price of $2,100 and buy seven and a half ounces of what's called the Grand Extract, which is supposedly the purest of the uh, things that they use to make Chanel Number 5. If you compare this to what Mary is using in our passage, Chanel Number no. 5 is a blue light special at Kmart. <laughs> I mean, seriously, it's like, go get some today, because, I mean, that's, that's a deal. For Mary to use this, what it took of her was this. The way these bottles were made, they were sealed at the top, so you couldn't open them If you tried, you would literally break the neck, and that is how they were typically used. A long, slender neck, you'd break it open, and the whole contents would be used in that moment. Now think about this. You're reclining around a table. There's at least 17 people in the room. You know, the 12 disciples, Jesus, Simon, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. At least 17. And so Mary comes in at some point during the meal, and she has the alabaster jar. She breaks it open, pours it over Jesus' head, and as the other accounts tell us, it also went down to his feet, where she eventually wiped his feet with her hair also. As he, so Jesus is covered in this 12 ounces. This aroma had to be incredibly overwhelming in the setting. And there's a part of me that believes that this scent and the aroma of this ointment probably carried forward with Jesus in the days ahead through his passion, through his crucifixion, even through to his burial, and possibly even to his resurrection, that the aroma of this nard would have been that strong and that long-lasting. It probably went with Jesus forward. And and so imagine you're sitting here, and, and you know in this jar is a year's wages. And here comes Mary, breaks it. And in an m- instant it's gone. Uh, roughly, you know, today it, people debate, census data'll tell you it's around fifty-five thousand dollars is the average income for most Americans. In an instant, fifty-five thousand dollars gone. All used up and not retrievable. Now there's great debate over whether Mary knew what she was doing. I won't go into it, but I agree with a lot of commentators who said she may not have had full knowledge. She had some knowledge of what she was doing and why. Not complete, and she was also that side of the cross, so she didn't fully know. But you've got to remember, Mary, Jesus has already said, was one of the best listeners of people who came to him. And, and, And imagine Martha, her sister, you know, she got upset at the previous meal when, when Mary didn't help serve. Imagine now that Mary has brought the family heirloom out and opened this thing up and poured it out and Lazarus has got to be saying, what am I? Hey, I died a few days ago. I'm back now. You didn't use it on me. You know, so Mary's brother and sister are probably like, what is the deal? Mary shows lavish, excessive, extravagant, love, devotion, sacrifice, and worship to Jesus. And this beautiful act is completely lost on the disciples because in verses 8 and 9, we read this, they saw it, they are indignant. Why this waste? They asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. $55,000 would serve a lot of poor in the city of Charlotte. Why this waste? Now, the most gracious interpretation of this, if we wonder why the disciples are saying this, is because, as we learned last week from Heath, Jesus' very last teaching was on care for the poor. So maybe, just, I don't think so, though, but maybe they're like, what's up? You just taught us. John gives us a little bit more information. He says Judas was leading the charge in this accusation, and the other disciples were very quick to agree, but John tells us a little bit of other information. He says, well, the reason Judas was leading the charge on the waste was because he was the treasurer of the disciples' funds, and he loved to steal and help himself to those funds. So he was looking forward to a little bit of what he would get if this thing had been sold. So it's probably not genuine concern for the poor in this moment. Why this waste? And there's a part of me, too, that thinks, okay, we know the end of the story here, but imagine you're, you're there at that moment, and trying, you try trying to put yourself around the table watching all of this. You see Mary do this thing. The disciples are getting indignant. They're kind of gnashing their teeth at her, acu- attacking her. What's Jesus going to do? If we didn't know the end of the story, I bet we'd think something like, okay, well, he'd he'd figure out a way to soothe it out. And and maybe he'd he'd correct Mary a little bit and said, you know, Mary, thank you, but, you know, you could have better done it this way or maybe, you know, you would think of something like that. Jesus' reaction is completely opposite the disciples. He not only defends Mary, he now elevates and honors her and basically shuts the disciples down in this, which to me is actually quite surprising. The verses tell us that aware of this, or aware that the disciples are accusing her, attacking her, because he's hearing it all, he said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. And then Jesus saves his most emphatic statement, his amen, to memorialize what Mary had done. Amen. I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And the amen is not so much on Mary herself as it is on Mary's actions. So it's not just remember Mary the woman, it's remember Mary the woman who did this. It's her actions that are the center of this. There's a side note. I'll point it out for your own study. I won't go into it. Jesus knew what was coming. He's saying when this gospel is going to be preached, he knew, my death is coming. This is going to be the start of the gospel, the good news. But then the the amen focuses on Mary in this moment and her actions. And so that's what we want to focus on this morning because we're in this season. Maybe you're new to Christianity or the church, and and sometimes even people who have been in church a long time don't know about the Christian calendar. We're in what's called the season of Lent, time leading up to Holy Week and Easter, and it's a season where Christians historically have taken very intentional time for soul reflection, deep introspection on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, all that he's done for us. And I think it's, it's good for us to do that even with this story this morning because as we do soul evaluation, here's, here's how I'll phrase it, is that I believe what Mary teaches us in this passage is that Jesus is worth the best that any disciple can offer. And I phrase it that way because, you know, everybody here has different means and resources. Everybody here has, there's different situations. But what Mary's and the story tells us is that what is Jesus worth? He's worth the best that any disciple can offer to him. And by Jesus' response to Mary, I think part of what he teaches us also is that nothing ever given to him in love is ever wasted. Your utter best, whatever that best is given to him in love, is never wasted. And you need to know this, because if you seek to follow Mary in this, as I think we are called to do, sometimes even Jesus' other followers will say, you're crazy, You're nuts for doing that, using your time that way or giving that up or whatever. And so the passage reminds us, Jesus is worth our utter best, and it's never wasted when we give it to him in love. So so you may say, okay, that's nice. Mary's example encourages us to love and follow Jesus with utter devotion. What exactly do we do? Do we... Dave, come up, sing another song. Maybe we'll get it right this time, and maybe we'll worship Jesus the way he's truly worthy to be worshiped. Do we, after the offering plate is passed, say, oh, don't leave yet, pass it again, so that you can now show Jesus how much he's really worth to you? What what do we do? And, And to try and illustrate this, because sometimes I think our worship can feel like, you know, worship And we've talked about this before. What we do here on a Sunday morning, the singing of songs isn't worship alone. Everything that we do, the prayers we lift up, the call to worship, the table, the reading of the Word of God, the preaching of the Word of God, all of it, the offering, all are elements where we worship Jesus. And so it's not just about singing. What it's all about is our hearts in willful submission to Him And it's the alignment of our hearts in love and devotion and sacrifice that lead to the actions of worship. And and, and I'll illustrate this way. You know, think about somebody that you love a lot. Um, If I do something for my wife, say I bring her flowers or I serve her in some way around the house, you know, where, you know, like like usual, I do all the chores or something like that, you (laughs) know… She's not here. That's why I can say that. (laughs) And and she says, thank you so much. And my response is, you're welcome. It's my duty. She's going to feel the love, isn't she? She's going to feel really appreciated. Uh, uh, Don't mention it, dear. Someone's got to do it. Might as well be me. It's just my obligation as your betrothed to do these kinds of things. I love you. She's really going to feel that. You know, sometimes that's how we worship the Lord. I mean, not, not overtly. We don't say it that way. But we, we, we follow Him, you know, in our, in our daily time with Him. It's like, well, I guess I'll spend time in the Word or in prayer because I have to. Uh, I'll go to church again. Not, uh, you know, there's a really cool thing on this morning. I'll DVR it. Then I can go do my duty, and I'll catch it later. Oftentimes, you know, if we do something, now, don't get me wrong, duty is not all bad. And sometimes duty actually helps our hearts follow after it. So it's a good thing. But too often, if our worship is constantly feeling stale and like I'm going through motions and it's just often somehow some kind of duty or legalism or something has crept in there and it's not out of a heart of love, it's out of a I'm just going to do the minimum to salve my conscience. That's not the worship that you see Mary here delivering, which is excessive, extravagant worship of Jesus Christ. So where do we begin, I think, is this. We begin the way Mary did by thinking about his gift. I already mentioned to you, Mary was, you know, considered one of Jesus' best listeners from other accounts. We begin by listening to and thinking about his gift. And what's amazing to me is Mary is on this side of the cross, not like us on the back side of the cross. She's listening to the Lord of life, his teaching, his words, watching him, following him, and her heart, it begins by thinking about his gift that's where we start. So don't, don't start by saying, okay, Lord, what am I going to do for you? What kind of gift can I bring? Begin by thinking about his gift. That's the starting point. We have this much easier on this side of the cross because, and, and let me just give full disclosure here. I stink at this. This whole passage has just nailed me all week long. I was gr- I literally had to repent this morning because I was so grumpy. I didn't even want to preach it because it's like it's convicted me so much because I stink at this. Because I look at Mary and I look at what's in here, and it's like, okay, if this is Mary, I am miles from this as I do my honest soul evaluation. I want to be more like Mary, and I've prayed, Lord, help me, but I stink. Like it was said of Lazarus, he stinketh. <laughs> But here are the questions I've been asking myself this week. Okay, Rick, you know your sins. How big are the debts that Jesus has paid for you? They're enormous. All I mean, and w- when we talk about the debts that Jesus has paid, look on the cross, Jesus has paid for all of your sins, all of the ones in the past, all of the ones in the present, and all the ones you'll ever commit. Utterly, completely. It is finished. It is done. It is completely, the debt is covered. How big is that? Huge. Huge. Lent is a great time to meditate on his gift. It makes me say, Rick, because of that, how much thanks, how much love and devotion is he worth for setting you free from sin? for bringing you into his family through adoption, through giving you life that now has meaning and purpose and true hope that cannot be taken away from you. How much is that worth? A lot. You see, you, you, you start there by meditating on his gift so that your heart fills up. And when you've taken time and, and this is what I do, I, I let my heart start feeling it's like, okay, now I gotta go do emails and I gotta do this and I gotta do because my time's busy. Don't short circuit, sit and let, let his gift fill your heart. And when your heart's full, then pour out something precious. And I'll just give you a few examples of this, because it can take all kinds of forms. It could be your time. I just mentioned my time is right now very precious to me because I don't have a lot of it. And it's, this passage this week, looking at Mary, has made me say, okay, wha- one, why is it like that? And two, maybe there's an opportunity to be excessive in my worship of the Lord where I'm going to sacrifice time very intentionally. Maybe it's personal worship where I'm not looking at the clock and I'm not thinking about other things and I'm just sitting with the Lord for an extended period. Maybe it's serving in a particular way. I'm going to take time very intentionally, done to Jesus, going to work with one of our Charlotte partners, going to work in a ministry, going to serve somehow. I I don't know what it may be, but just you can use your time as a gift poured out to the Lord. Uh, Maybe it's your faith and actions associated with that. You know, maybe, maybe this is the time of year, finally, you forgive that person. And the only way, because you know how much they've hurt you, when you let his gift fill your heart up, that's when you can then show forgiveness. Maybe you'll finally forgive that person. Maybe you'll share your faith with your neighbor or befriend your neighbor. Maybe you'll take time with a coworker who's hurting in the name of Jesus. Maybe, maybe you'll work for racial reconciliation in our community in the name of Jesus as a gift where I'm scared to death, Lord, and this may cost me a lot. I'm going to pour it out to you. It's not wasted. Maybe it's like Mary, considering your material resources. A precious gift given in Jesus' name you know, someone a few months ago gave a precious gift to the church, said, they did it anonymously and said, use this, please, for the work of the Lord somehow that, you know, we will continue to give to the our tithes and our offerings because we know that. good. But if there's something that you haven't been able to do, and there's plenty of things that we don't do just because of the resources, we try to be very good stewards, they said, use this to do that thing that you want but can't. I think that's breaking open an alabaster jar and pouring it out. Beautiful thing done to Jesus. And I'm not saying it has to be to the church. Maybe it's to Young Life. Maybe it's to Heath McGlawn with RUF. Maybe it's to another group or organization. But you give a gift extravagantly in the name of Jesus because of His love. And maybe, I'll just end here, it's total surrender. You know, the, the, the the concept of the alabaster jar is very important, I believe, because once broken and opened, all was poured out in that instant. There's not a way to try and recover it and reclaim it. It's poured out and used. And, and what's the passage? Um, make the most of the days, you know, make the most of your time because the days are evil. Sometimes, The Lord gives you an opportunity, and that's the time to seize it and pour out your gift because it's not going to come around again. Like Shakespeare said, there's a tide, and if you miss that tide, you've missed the opportunity. I do believe the Lord will give you plenty of opportunities, but sometimes the Lord moves in you, and you know, and He's calling you to do something. It's like, break open that jar, pour it out. Maybe you've been playing around with following Jesus. Today can be the day of salvation for you to say, Lord, I give my life in full surrender to you. Break open your alabaster jar. Give him your resources. Give him your sexuality. Lay before him your fears. Pour out your hopes. Surrender your idols. Give it all fully to the one who gave his life for you. It's like saying, Jesus, I give you everything. I break open my jar, jar. I pour it out to you without reservation or the hope of getting it back. And if you're like me, here's what I do. I do that. It's like, well, Jesus, I'd really like that one back. <sighs> I'm so lame. <laughs> my prayer is, Lord, by power of your Holy Spirit, help me to do this genuinely. And I don't think it's a one-time thing. Honestly, I do believe it's every morning you wake up. Lord, let me surrender completely to you. How wonderful it would be to sense Jesus saying to all of us this season of Lent, you've done a beautiful thing for me. And I know this, this passage it has eaten me alive this week. Here's part of the good news. Jesus' gift, part of it is, his mercies are new to us every morning. And that's why I can even stand up and share this with you. Because while I fail at it miserably, His mercies and his grace are new every morning. Today can be the day that you step forward in faith and break open a jar and say, Jesus, to you, to you, because you are the one I love. You are the one that deserves all of my devotion. You I surrender to. It's a beautiful thing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for the beauty of Mary's act in this passage. It is not an easy thing to consider. It's challenging. And and Lord, I pray for myself and for all of us that you would help us more and more reflect in our actions, our faith, our resources, our time. May they be given to you as acts of worship that you would use for your glory. Lord, we joyfully offer you our lives, our worship, our treasure, our time, and ask that we would willingly and delightfully do whatever pleases you. In your name we pray, amen.